the oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are beginning our new miniseries, The House Bummy, covering every film written by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. We will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett, how are you doing? Feeling wonderful. Uh, excited to be embarking on this new adventure today. Okay. How about you? How are you feeling? Also excited to start something new. I feel like because Denny and Scream overlapped, mm-hmm. it kind of felt like one series that lasted four months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited to be like totally starting something new and very excited Because today we're honored to have a special guest. She's an actress, singer, improv comedian, the queen of New York City. And she's here to help us ring in Scorpio season. Please welcome Lauren Renner. Thank you. Thank you. So thrilled to be here. Glad I could pencil it in for for you guys. Queen of New York is a tough job, but someone has to do it. So... Well, we think you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Before we start talking about this movie, I also want to say happy one year anniversary of Cinema Bums. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) So we're recording on the anniversary of Cinema Bums? No, no. This is coming out on the anniversary week. Oh, oh. The 17th is our anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. What an accomplishment. What a time. Sticking with something for a year is a big deal. So congratulations. <laughs> to, to us, maybe more than people may even realize. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this is our 54th film and our 62nd episode. Whoa. Wow. wow. No slackers here. Uh-huh. That's a lot for a year. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, it is. If If you've listened to all 62 episodes of the show i'd like to say thanks for giving birth to us mom <laughs> yeah right for real oh wow that many you know <laughs> honestly i i <laughs> we can cut this i stopped lift, listening after uh, modesto <laughs> cubis episode i was like it's never gonna get any better than that so <laughs> so why should we why should i even listen but I do still enjoy making them. I'm not sure most of your listeners can count that high. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Probably 62. not. When's the last time you sat down and counted to 62? Just I don't know. in my head? Just counted it from 1 to exactly. 62? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I get really muddled in the 30s through the 50s. Just kind of blurs together. Yeah. Well, <laughs> congratulations, <laughs> oh congratulations wade yeah that's what this is about congratulations well yes okay today start of a new series the house bummy we're talking about all the films written by a team of writers two women karen mccullough and kirsten smith starting today with 10 things i hate about you and continuing in order through legally blonde ella enchanted She's the Man, The House Bunny, and The Ugly Truth. 
Lauren, which of those have you seen? And what is your history with this movie? 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh my God. I think, I honestly think that I've seen all of those. Okay. It's just been a long time for some, but I do think I've seen them all. But 10 Things I Hate About You is definitely the favorite out of those ones. You know, Heath Ledger, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. These are things Mm -hmm. I enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I loved it since I was like, you know, I guess like middle school, whenever, whenever you get into the feels. Yeah. So when you asked me to do this, I was, I was on board. Yeah. This is, this is my favorite out of the ones you listed. No offense to Mm. Legally Blonde. You're great. But yeah. (laughs) Emmett, what about you? What's your history with Nicole and Smith? I have seen this one before a couple of times. I've seen Legally Blonde once at the beginning of this past summer. And I may have seen Ella Enchanted when I was a kid. This is my favorite one also of the ones that I've seen. Did you watch this growing up? I did not watch this growing up. I saw it for the first time when I lived in Seattle. It's a famous Seattle oh. movie. And oh, that's so, right. so somebody was like, hey, hey, you like Shakespeare and are living in Seattle. We need to watch Taming of the Taming of the Shrew done with Heath Ledger. And that's when they had me, honestly. <laughs> I love that they referred to it as the Taming of the Shrew done with Heath Ledger. Like it's that close <laughs> that that may be an interpretation i later put on it oh. but how accurate is the seattle representation would you say so damn inaccurate <laughs> they filmed this on the one sunny day a year i heard that it took them four <laughs> years to film this movie because they were shooting in between sunny days to make it look like seattle is a sunny paradise like unto la <laughs> I did not even think about the fact that it rains all like that did not cross my mind. Was I aware that it was taking place in Seattle? Yes. Did I think about the fact that it was a completely dry climate? No, not once. (laughs) Wow. It's astounding. It's shot in Tacoma Uh outside of Seattle, but it's all shot at a real high school. Oh, wow. Stadium high school. There's no sets they built for the movie. There's nothing shot on the soundstage. It's all at a real school, and they just, like, really shot it in the Seattle area. Wow. Wait, what was your first experience with this film? My first experience with this film was actually earlier this year, January. I watched this with Laura, who insisted on showing it to me, and I really loved it. And it Mm. was one that I liked when I saw, and then it, like, stuck in my brain. And I kept thinking about it. The first scream was kind of like that, too. But I saw it recently, and then I watched it for the second time for this podcast. I had seen She's the Man and The House Bunny when they came out, around the time they came out. But those are all, and I have not seen the other three. You've never seen Legally Blonde? No. Whoa, dude. Gonna be watching it for the first time next week. Ella Enchanted is good, too. I think I maybe read the book of Ella Enchanted or just like saw the trailer a bunch of times. I remember it coming out. Like I'm excited for your journey, for the journey you're about to, to go on. Excited. Wildly excited. I also know this is not the last. It's the first but not the last Shakespeare outing on this journey too. So that's mm-hmm. very exciting. What else is 
she's the man is i believe based on 12th night yeah and the house bunny is famously based on timon of athens (laughs) today we're talking about 10 things i hate about you uh the first film directed by gil junger who is primarily a tv director which may not surprise you his other films are Black Knight with Martin Lawrence, If Only, and Think Like a Dog, which came out last year. Think Like a Dog. (laughs) I think it's a puppy movie. Oh my god. This is also the first film written by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. We'll talk more about them later. Adapted from the 1590 comedic play, The Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare. We'll talk about that later, too. Score by Richard Gibbs, who around the same time also did the music for Dr. Doolittle and Big Mama's House. Incredible. Running a blessed one hour and 37 minutes. Those Denny days of two hours and 41 minutes are behind us. Yeah. (laughs) Released March 31st, 1999 by Buena Vista Pictures, which is the label that Disney used to use for their more adult live action films they felt were inappropriate to be released under the disney label wow according to the numbers which is the source we normally use there's some discrepancy but according to the numbers they said that was a budget of 13 million made 60 million so financial success critically liked at the time emmett what would you say happens in this movie to anyone who hasn't seen it. Okay, so in this movie, we've got two sisters, Bianca and Kat. Kat is a kind of a, a, she's like a punk rock girl. She's like too cool for school. She's not like other girls, you know? Um, and <laughs> she just like listens to a lot of punk and she doesn't drive like a cool car. She drives like a beat up car. She is like approximately 500 other girls who are in Club Skunk. <laughs> yeah, she is exactly like about 100. Other, yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Never no. will ever see. We'll public. never see again. <laughs> A women only club other than Heath Ledger. I love that Heath Ledger is like, I couldn't be seen at Club Skunk. Then goes to Club Skunk and the bartender knows him. <laughs> so- so i mean (laughs) all right all right all right uh but whatever and then bianca is her more like i don't know what what would you say typical cool girl sister like rich cool girl she's like going around she's popular with the boys and especially these two that we know are young lovely semi-protagonists he's i guess he's not really he's not strong in this movie at all but old old joey gordon levitt is there as cameron um who falls instantly for bianca cameron is a sweet guy we like cameron there's also a total tool named joey something um and he we don't like he's a joey rich sunglasses joey sunglasses joey donner joey blowout joey jersey shore transplant he is there he's trying also to date bianca and their dad has made a rule cat and bianca's dad has made a rule that bianca can't date unless cat does the older and meaner more intimidating one so then Cameron comes up with a genius idea, aided by his wonderful friend, 
whose name oh, I am blanking on right now, but you know him. She Santa played Claus. the elf from Santa Claus. <laughs> Michael, Michael. The child Superman. who was born 40 years old. <laughs> I mean, the man is incredible. He in is so film. good. I think it would be like hell to be in a scene with him, but I do think he's hilarious in this movie. <laughs> he is there he suggests to cameron that they get somebody to date cat so that cameron can date bianca and that's going not very well because all the boys are scared to date cat and then they're like oh we need a backer we're gonna get a rich kid to pay for this so they get joey to pay the money while they convince old heath ledger's character whose name is what patrick verona verona yeah, damn. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's just not fair. Get real. <laughs> Let's see, he is... Australian. Well, he's Australian. He's there. There's all these rumors about him. People think he's like some sort of badass. He's like doing the bad boy routine, like lighting stuff on fire and smoking in class. <laughs> <laughs> In a particularly <laughs> epic move. And his like punk rock friend puts the cigarette out in the frog. He's like, what the hell, dude? Why are you smoking in here? <laughs> Wonderful. So they get this kid and they're like, okay, you should try and date Kat. And he tries and eventually turns out they're both not like other girls. You know, mm. they're they're not like other girls in the same way, in fact like kind of hit it off they're both outcasts people are scared of them and they're kind of like aggressive but they're also all about like that punk rock like thing of like grabbing life by the horns and just like going for it and like they're all about like not telling each other what to do and like nobody like do your own thing and he's like yeah do whatever makes you happy man and then the way that she knows at the end that he is being like he's not being honest with her he's like come on go to prom with me and she says she doesn't want to and he still is like yeah but come on why won't you do it instead like what he would usually do is just be like yeah yeah no, of course not like do your thing so then she finds out she's pissed obviously she's like i can't believe you would do this and then she writes a poem and says i hate you but i don't hate you i love you and then you cry because you're obligated to you um and there's also the great part where Bianca punches Joey right in the schnoz. And that is really satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Did I do a good job explaining it? <laughs> that, that was perfect. I feel like I just watched it all over again in my mind. I feel like I just watched Emmett watch it all over again. <laughs> in the best sort of way. Well, Lauren, 10 things I hate about you, flop or bop? bop bop and a half it's it's really good i think that it's just like if you're thinking of it solely as like a romantic comedy it's so like actually genuinely funny that Mm. it works and like there's only one you know couple that you actually care about it's like it's got all that you know the normal rom-com aspect to it that you genuinely care about the characters but like actually all of the characters have real funny moments which is so refreshing it's not just like a couple side characters say funny things sometimes but it's like Mm -hmm. every character like the dad hilarious the teacher so funny like everyone Mm -hmm. has 
their moments and I just I think it's I think it's wonderful I think it's a, a an outstanding piece of work mm. Emmett flop or bop this is a bop this is such a bop just wonderful to Lauren's point about the teachers the, all the teachers in this are hilarious every side character is amazingly funny but all of the main characters too so quick-witted and like mm. so much good dialogue in this mm-hmm. and not just like good jokes but good story-driven dialogue that is also funny yeah yeah i think it's a really good writer's showcase for this series looking at these two writers like it's such a witty writerly movie mm-hmm. i would also give it a bop oh okay. <laughs> perhaps even a bop and a half maybe damn it rocks it's so good i think it's like a pitch perfect rom-com like it hits every single beat but it's also kind of like a very good teen movie in the way that you guys are describing like that there is this wide ensemble cast who mm-hmm. we all like and i think what's different than most of both of those genres is like you were saying that the jokes hit and are so consistently funny. And also that it is sort of like has an edge, I think. Like is very frank about sex in a way that's kind of like beloved family movies on Disney Plus are not. Right. <laughs> Other than this movie. It's impressive to me that like it was filmed in what you said, 1999 or it came out in 99. For mm-hmm. like the jokes to actually hold up and like you not be offended by something when you're watching it like it was just genuinely like good well-written jokes and not just like cheap shots at you know stupid yeah. stuff so i think that also is like why it stands the test of time because it's not just like quick jabs to like certain demographics it's just like actually funny writing mm. which is refreshing well along those lines that brings us cleanly on to a new segment i've added here what? Which is called Fine Wine, where I just want to ask, like, these movies, these writers were definitely at, like, the cutting edge of, like, progressive media at the time that they were writing. And now it's 20 years later. So, like, is there anything in this movie that we feel has aged really well or anything that is, like, problematic now in ways that it maybe wasn't seen as then? I feel like the Rasta, the white Rastas... I think it's genius, and I I think that the jokes about them in this movie are hilarious, and I think all still work. I just don't think they would be in this movie if it was made today. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But I, I don't think that would be necessarily the right choice. I don't think this movie would be better for not having them. I think they work because you have Mr. Morgan. Yeah, because and like that whole scene where he's like, I don't know about your upper middle class, your like terrible life thing, and then the the white rousers are like, yeah, man, and he's like, don't even, yeah, don't even <laughs> get me started, right? <laughs> just so much fun, right? Well, it's like it's the immediate shutdown of the. It's like they don't just continue that joke on; they don't keep being like, oh, look, it's the white rousers. It's like we see it we get it we know those people and like even i feel like you know 2021 there's a different maybe it's not ross as necessarily but it's like you know there's, right yeah yeah we know those people and um it's just like it's immediately shut down and so it's funny mm-hmm. but it's not like they keep bringing up and telling the same joke over and over yeah. so i think that's what makes it work 
I don't know. I feel like the whole movie has aged pretty well, all things considered. I agree. I think it's aged remarkably well. I think her flashing the teacher is the thing you couldn't do in a movie today. Mm, Right. At least like as a joke without any repercussions in the story. Sure. You probably couldn't have a 17-year-old flash a teacher. (laughs) That's a whole like prestige Hulu TV show. (laughs) You're trying to make something about that today. Right, right. it, It turns into a drama immediately. In courtroom the, drama be called something like the reveal <laughs> huh. uh, the flash yeah it would be called the flash, the flash. <laughs> let me think oh the line where they say like we're your guys but not in a prison movie sort of way that's one that I look askance at <laughs> yeah. today but again, like very tame compared to probably every other comedy released in 1999. Right. The scene where the kid gets the dick drawn on his face. Still funny. Still holds up. And it gets funnier over the course of the scene. It gets funnier and funnier that it's just still there. I also love that it's like, you know, there's like three different penises that you see throughout the course of that scene because they've had to re draw it on probably throughout (laughs) filming it and it's like a different shape every time the camera comes back to it that's that's a little easter egg for you (laughs) i read a uh, retrospective that that actor wrote i think after he fledger passed away about making this movie and he was like i am 40 years old and every day of my life someone walks up to me and says i have a dick on my face don't i Oh my god. To be fair, that man has been 40 years old his entire life. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I feel like the chemistry between Heath and Julia is mm. incredible. Mm. And is like the other thing that makes this movie work so well today still. It just it just feels real. It just I think Heath Ledger just has a way of I don't know, something about his personality, his I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just getting, I'm all smitten. <laughs> He's just wonderful. And I think that, I think she's someone we don't see enough of, like mm-hmm. just generally and especially like she's just one, a wonderful scene partner. And I think that they deserve to do millions of more movies together. But alas. The chemistry is like, it's, it's palpable, right? It's just like, yeah, you believe it. You're 100% there for it. Especially like, I love the, I love the paintball scene. Uh, that is like one of my favorites. Uh-huh. I literally like cannot think of a worse possible date that I would rather go on. Like that sounds like <laughs> my personal hell, but mm-hmm. so happy for them watching it, like tearing up like that is love, yeah. though. It's the last thing I ever want to do, <laughs> but it, they make it work. I'm so happy for them. Yeah. This movie achieves the impossible in making paintball look fun. It's just not. It hurts. <laughs> it's messy. You're sweaty. Like, nothing is fun. Yeah, it also makes you, like... Never mind, I was going to say something shady about her hairstyle at the end, but... You know what? I... Listen, I've got to say, I one? don't care. <laughs> I don't care what Emmett or Lauren or BuzzFeed has to say about her prom hairdo. Oh, my God. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> 
That's what I'm saying. This movie does the impossible and makes me like like that choice for her because of like how much I love her and love him and like want them to that to be right for them. I mean, right. I just think of who her character is as a person and like think about her sitting in front of the mirror getting ready for prom and she's like hair gel, I guess, and just like <laughs> slaps it and combs it back. Like, you know, she hasn't thought this through. This is just what it is, you know. <laughs> but wait, I'm glad that you liked you liked it. I'm sure Heath Ledger thought it was gorgeous too. So I just like her a lot in general. I feel like it is really both of them that I am like fully bought into in this movie. And I think because he is a bigger star and he kind of has like maybe the flashier part, the attention goes to him. But I think it's like definitely the stuff she's doing too. Oh yeah. Because it's so like it's so easily easily could have just been like she's a bitch and and that could have been it. But like I think she just did a really great job of like like yes, yeah, she's a bitch. We're all bitches, right? But there was so much like nuance and you still like her and you can tell like behind her eyes there's a reason, you know, that she's like this. Which of course we don't find out until the end when she's talking to her sister about what's his name, Joey? Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know that that she's not just, she's not evil. She's so human and like relatable. She deserves love just like everybody else. So I agree with you 100%. I also really like the relationship between um, Heath Ledger and Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this. I think it there's like this really sweet thing where at first he's really, Cameron is really scared of Patrick. And is like very intimidated to come and talk to him. But by the end of it, Patrick is like, gives him that sweet speech at the end where he's like, is she like about Bianca is like, is she worth all this? Like, what did you do all of this for? If like, if you didn't want to be with her and he was like, you're, you're twice the man that Joey is. And like getting that like older brotherly sort of go out and get the girl is like super sweet. And I just, I love that moment and love all the little moments between them over the course of this film. And I will die on the hill that they have the same exact face. Mm. <laughs> I will, like, I think that Ooh, there's compelling. a secret somewhere in genealogy they're related because... Interesting. Just look, just Google it when you, when this is over. Do a little do-do-do-do. Google. <laughs> they look the same. It's eyes. I would have guessed watching this mm-hmm. that Heath Ledger was about 24... Mm-hmm. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt was about 14 years old when they filmed this. But I looked it up, and um, Julia Stiles and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were both 17, and Heath Ledger was 19 when they Ooh. filmed it. Oh my gosh. Wow. So they're like pretty age accurate. Wow. Oh, and get this, Gabrielle Union was 28. Oh my god. <laughs> Are you kidding? I swear. Gabrielle Union is older than I am now and looks <laughs> like she's 15 years old in this movie. That's incredible. Oh my, how old is Gabrielle Union now? 22 years older oh, than that. So let me look it up. She's 49. Oh my God. I did not realize Heath Ledger was that young during this either. It's his first American on-screen thing in any capacity. Wow. He had done like a little bit of stuff in Australia, but this is like the beginning of his career. Holy crap. 
And they all did that well in that movie, and they were literally just teenagers. Just ugh. that is also it's crazy to imagine. Like if there was a film of me when I was seventeen, <laughs> God, I would good. never be able to watch it. I think Julia Stiles has said that she's like it's the movie I've made that people love the most, but it's really hard for me to watch it because I was so young. Yeah, Which I'm sure. I mean that makes sense, but it's like she did a good job. <laughs> Yeah, a really, really good did. job, especially for a seventeen-year-old. I can't believe Joseph Gordon-Levitt was seventeen, though, because he does not look like a seventeen-year-old. <laughs> oh, baby face! He's so cute in this movie. He like oh so nails the dreamy stare, which he has to do a bunch. Yeah, and when he has the "I burn, I pine, I perish," like he pulls it off. <laughs> And that is a thankless role in the original play. That's a thankless role. And in this movie, it like doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily like the best bit of all time of like the lead four. It's probably like the least fun to play. Right. It's the most one note. It changes the least of any of them. Wow. He's just a lover boy. What about Bianca? We haven't really talked about her at all. She's not one that I really think about. Like, I don't really care necessarily about her throughout the course of the movie, personally. But she definitely has, like, her redeeming moments. Like, you know, when she punches Joey and when she, you know, finally is, like, realizing who her sister is and all of that stuff. I think that she definitely has, like, those redeeming moments. But it's, like, I don't know. Like, I just don't. I don't care about her. I wish I cared more, maybe. Maybe that's not the point. Maybe I'm not supposed to, but she did okay. I thought the actress was was cute. I like the scenes with her and Cameron a lot. I think think she plays those really well. I think the stuff where she's across from Julia Stiles, she's a little outclassed in like the more emotional scenes and Mm -hmm. is like kind of left in the lurch Mm. a little. But that's also kind of like how the characters are maybe a little too she's like repressing her feeling over it and like and cat is kind of like wallowing in her feeling over it so i don't know i think her character maybe feels a little bit like inconsistent to me because it's like the Mm. whole like first half of the movie she's just you know shallow 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 right just wants to like get with joey wants to start dating whatever like because she just doesn't even interact with him prior to like that party She's like, I know I want to be his girlfriend, but, like, doesn't even talk to him. Mm-hmm. Then goes to this party, and he's, like, showing her his modeling photos. And she's like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is disgusting. I'm like, girl, we we knew this the whole time. Where were you? Yeah. yeah and all yeah. of a sudden, she just does a 180. She's like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is my bae, and I'm not shallow anymore. And it's just like, okay, um, random, but good for you. That's kind of how I felt. <laughs> I think it's a little weird that she is treated as like the super hot one that everyone likes when she really is more sort of like matching Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like young, cute energy. Yeah. Which is why I agree. I think their scenes together, especially the one where like she asks him in French, <laughs> when are you going to ask me out? And he doesn't know what it means. <laughs> right. That's, that's her best moment to me in the movie. Yeah. If this were my high school... Everyone and their mother would be pining after Julia Stiles. Yeah. Yeah. She obviously. Is the moment. She is the it girl. You're afraid of her? Exactly. Exactly. You know? Yeah. 
Emmett, you mentioned the original play. Mm-hmm. That sounds to me like the return of the Shakespeare Corner. Bum, bum, bum. Our most popular segment ever, back from the Lion King days. Oh my god. How does this compare to the original that came out 400 years before it? Taming of the Shrew, beloved by all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Yeah, an absolutely spotless classic. Taming of the Shrew. Zero wrong with it whatsoever. No, so Taming of the Shrew, the original, is a play that about which much ink has been spilled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was beautiful. I feel like I'm reading the, the Arden introduction <laughs> preface here to the play. Yeah, I, I might be right now, just like out of my memory. So the thing about Taming of the Shrew is it's a play, much like this movie, about a father with two daughters, uh, one who is very beautiful and lovely and who everybody wants to marry, and another one who is totally awful to everyone and everyone hates. Her name is Kat, and she's also referred to as a shrew, which is mean, a mean way of saying a not nice lady. Similarly, in that film, in that film, Shakespeare had his protagonist <laughs> um, decide to also hire Petruchio um, to woo Katarina or Kate or Cat. It's all very similar, except that there's a lot of abuse involved when Petruchio is doing the actual wooing. It involves starving her and keeping her in a house locked up to, like, tame her and bend her to his will, supposedly. But then there's also a lot of controversy because some people think that maybe that was meant ironically and that at the end of the play, what we were supposed to take away is that Petruchio and Kate have banded together to like fleece these other people because there's a huge money bet involved, which is another thing that this movie shares in common is like a money bet being part of what is going on. It differs in how that is involved mechanically, but that is like a theme that runs through both of them. There's some reason to believe that Petruchio and Kate winning the gold at the end by Kate being the most obedient wife is their revenge on everybody. But as it is written, fairly problematic text, often not produced without some sort of weird thing nowadays to like make it okay. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I feel like this as an adaptation does a lot better job than a lot of plays that try to do the plain, like an original text version, but like shape it with some sort of directorial idea that makes it better. I feel like this full rewrite and just like taking some of the basic premises, de-problematize them or something is uh, much better Mm -hmm. or like just like it just like works more cleanly, I feel like. Okay, this is just to get way off on this. But I think what's interesting and good and worth doing about the problematic Shakespeare comedies mm-hmm. is like the problems and like the weird stuff that people don't like want to get into. And it's not like to make that stuff funny or to make it like okay, but it is to like explore it and be like, why was this the thing? I don't think that's necessarily good for a teen movie. So I think that this is a good like adaptation. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I also don't know that 
yeah, Tame and Bashru has as much to work with. So the like the ones that I'm thinking of are like also all the Dinswell or like measure for measure that are like truly messed up, like even in premise. But like what they're about is kind of the messed upness. Mm-hmm. But maybe Taming of the Shrew is also like that. Interesting. I think we should all be getting into these plays more and like not just listening to what the synopsis of them is and being like, yes, it's about abuse or like, yes, it's about like this one thing or this other thing, just because some critics have said that it was about that. Because I think when you read the plays, it's often about like a lot more than whatever any one person said it was about. So that's my short way of saying, I don't know. You should go read it. Form your own opinions. <laughs> I read it for the first time a couple of years ago. I had always avoided it because of its reputation, as you said, Emmett. And for the most part, I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. And then you get to that ending, like literally like the action stops. Like basically what this movie goes through is through like the second to last scene of the play. And then there's this whole long, like 30 minute last scene that is all the husbands being like, let's see whose wife will get them a drink the fastest. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're like, okay, I get I get it. I get what's so wrong about this. It's like also so grotesque as to be like, don't you think that you have to, that he has to know that it's like, that's also a joke. That like, it's a joke about those guys. Well, that's the thing I think that's interesting is that it obviously is a sexist play, Uh but the female characters are like so much better written and have so much more agency and dialogue than any other female characters at the time. But they were being played by men, not women. So <laughs> Lest we forget. Yeah. Um, some of the other adaptations of this over the years, the 1948 musical Kiss Me Kate, mm. the f- 1967 film that has the same name, Taming of the Shrew, with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who were like famous stars of the time who were married in real life and had like a famous tumultuous relationship in real life mm. and they like capture that energy on film i've seen a couple of scenes from it. it's not bad and the 2003 gabrielle union movie deliver us from eva no kidding what a full circle her and ll cool j <laughs> in two adaptations of taming of the shrew on film this movie really does not do right by gabrielle union i've got to say no it gives her like one line and she's like i'm with joey now like that's it like (laughs) there's nothing and she as a 28 year old with all those high schoolers was probably like get me out of here get me off of this set yeah she's clearly such a star and she has truly no lines (laughs) and then she's mean at the end for no reason (laughs) yeah they just threw that in there i think we should watch deliver us from eva that looks quality I need to look this up. There's a great weird bit in the play. I'm just thinking about the play now. Uh-huh. In like all of the things he's doing to confuse her, to like keep her on her toes, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, this section of the play is very long. And in the movie, it's pretty much just sort of the scene where she tries to kiss him while they're drunk. And then he's like, no. <laughs> and then she's like confused about that. But that's like an act in the play. And there's this whole weird bit where he is ordering her clothes too small from the tailor. And then they get to the tailor and the clothes don't fit and she's mad. And then he like beats up the tailor in front of her. 
And he's like, don't worry about that guy, baby. This will never happen again. <laughs> like walks oh, away. My God. That part, I do love that part. <laughs> that it is bizarre and cruel, but also kind of awesome. He like shows up late to their wedding wearing just his underwear. <laughs> it's like all of this weird stuff. I've never read it, so I'm gonna have to give it a read. The other big change uh, the movie makes, which I think is a smart change, is that the Michael character, Cameron's friend, in the play is also in love with Bianca. Mm. Oh. And, like, hires his friend because the friend can, like, tutor her and get him an in. And then they're, like, both competing for her love. And she, of course, chooses the Cameron character. But this movie gives Michael a different love interest in... (laughs) The random girl who's in love with William Shakespeare. The random girl from Club Skunk. Did y'all watch to the end of the credits? (laughs) I did. I've seen through it. Wait, what? Have you seen the outtakes at the end of the credits, Lauren? I don't think so. I don't remember him. You would remember them. (laughs) What is it? Just a bunch of sex jokes, basically. No. no it's just basically that everyone at this school was horned up as much as possible all the time right well clearly <laughs> yeah but they just make the, the subtextual textual in the in the post-credit sequences i mean i went to high school too but like something was in the water in seattle <laughs> there also um is a really i mean it is this thing. It's a horny outtake, <laughs> but it's kind of sweet with uh, Julia and Heath where like they're doing the dramatic car scene and then like one of them gets silly and then they just like start making out, <laughs> which doesn't happen in this scene right. and like pretend to jump into the back seat with each other. <laughs> like I said, palpable. Right. Truly. Yeah. Okay, let's run through the rest of these segments and then we'll get to our MVP. For cultural context in this movie, I've got two things. The first one is the Riot Girl movement of the 1990s mm-hmm. and all the music of this movie, the posters that Kat has on her wall. Anyone know anything about the Riot Girls? Uh, I, I did the bare minimum amount of, <laughs> of research on this. So forgive me. They're basically a uh, a feminist punk wave born out of the Pacific Northwest, Pacific Olympia, Washington, which is right south of Seattle. Oh, okay. That was talking about like feeling really excluded, um, like as women feeling really excluded from the punk scenes mm. at that time because it was very like excessively violent at shows, like physically violent, and they felt like they couldn't couldn't or didn't want to hang with big punk guys who were thrashing around in the pit but they did want to like have punk be part of their their lifestyle Uh, it had a lot to do with like the diy thing had a lot to do with like uh like creating zines and a lot of a lot to do with like meeting groups for like collective action that sort of stuff also they were highly criticized in the media for not like really caring to learn their instruments to uh standard like <laughs> pop tastes and like uh which is like kind of when Heath Ledger makes the comment about like a bunch of girls who can't play their instruments is like yeah. what that's what he's he's like parroting a a mainstream media belief of that time and i feel like this movie 
kind of like has some of that spirit in it, especially Club Skunk and especially just like the whole vibe that the cat has embraced after after dealing with Joey in her freshman year. Yeah, it makes I mean, it makes perfect sense why that would be like her vibe after going through all that. Also, do we like I don't remember. Does it ever get mentioned like where their mom is? Is she alive? Is she? I think Bianca at one point says after mom left. Yeah. It just gives me like divorced parent energy. Their like Mm. sibling relationship in general. Mm -hmm. And that also I think could have clearly impacted. Well, both of them, but impacted Kat in that like whatever pivotal changes she was going through. And like, so that totally Mm. makes sense with the, um, the right girl aspect of it as well the dad sucks too like (laughs) it's a good performance but he's not being a good father to these girls no he's not oh man along with that the other thing i want to talk about in cultural context was just like the way this movie is like openly having its characters talk about sex Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. i think is kind of radical for the time in like high school movies and maybe because of this movie, we get it a lot more now. Yeah. But it's also like not in a, not often played for laughs or not predominantly played for laughs in this movie. And it's not like grotesque. Yeah. No, yeah. It's not a sex comedy. It's sometimes frank, but, and like straightforward and sometimes a little crude, but it's not ever like a gross out. Yeah. It definitely feels like this movie, almost like it was working to normalize high school conversations around sex because you know obviously everyone knows high schoolers have sex so like why wouldn't that be casually talked about and brought up and like the frustrations with that and the pressure with that so yeah I think it did a really good job of like it felt genuine and like Mm -hmm. and it's especially now learning how young these people actually were just again going back to that I'm like I just have so much more respect for these like kids that were that were doing this totally cool well i've got a little bit of behind the scenes stuff here specifically about karen mccullough and kirsten smith the writers because okay, we're cool. starting this series about them karen mccullough was an army brat she grew up all over the world graduated college in 1988 with a marketing degree worked in marketing for a long time eventually couldn't find another marketing job and started writing screenplays Meanwhile, Kirsten Smith grew up in Los Angeles, writing poetry and living on a houseboat, never watching TV. Emmett, thought you'd like that. Yeah. She graduates college in 92 with an English degree. While she's in college, she has this internship. She's reading scripts at Cinetel Films, which is a production company. And she stays there. She works her way up. In 1995, she becomes like the director of development. The person who's basically like picking what films they are producing. Uh, and through this job, she reads a script submission that she really likes from Karen McCullough. She contacts her and says like, hey, I read your script. I really like it. They talk over the phone for a long time. Karen flies out to L.A. and they get margaritas together when they meet for the first time, which I love. And they hit it off and they wrote a script together, which was a female-led action comedy. Didn't sell, but that was their first thing. 
and they had such a good time doing it that they wanted to write a second script. Um, and right at the time, Clueless had came out mm. in 1995, which I now feel like I should have watched after learning this. But they were inspired by it, and that's directed and written by Amy Heckerling, who is adapting Jane Austen's Emma and setting it in a modern high school setting. And they were basically like, we should do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like deciding what to do it about. And they chose the Taming of the Shrew. They took the title from Karen's high school diary, which was called 10 Things I Hate About Anthony. Anthony was her boyfriend at the time. (gasps) And they took the title and like actual fragments of things she wrote while she was in high school and made it like dialogue in the film. That's awesome. Wow. That's so awesome. So that's like her big angle on it. And Kirsten did like a lot of women's study and like female poetry in college. So she's bringing like the feminist angle and the riot girl stuff. And then they sold the script in 1997. It says their process is that they write the first draft together. Then they each write a rewrite of it. Then they edit each other's rewrite. And then they like come back and combine them again. Wow. Wow. Okay. Here's an incredible bit of connection to a past series we've done. Emmett. Okay. In the script uh-huh. that Karen and Kristen wrote, the song that Patrick sings to her in the incredible marching band scene uh-huh. is I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family. Later that year, Scream 2 comes out and has a scene where the jock boyfriend sings to Neve Campbell that exact same song in the cafeteria. And they were like, oh, <laughs> well, we can't use that song anymore. Uh, apparently they asked Julia Stiles what song she would want someone to sing to her. And she said, can't take my eyes off of you by Frankie wow. Valley. That is truly wild. And it came out the same year. And that's like Scream 2 is the reason why they couldn't use that song. Well, Scream 2 came out the same year they wrote it, which was 97. Damn. But I think she made the right choice. Yeah. And I think that Heath Ledger is about a million times more charming than that schmuck in screen two is so he's so incredibly charming during that scene i mean really during the whole thing but that is sort of like the big set piece of the movie yeah this is the thing about follow-ups these both of this was news to me maybe you guys have heard of some of this in 2009 abc family produced one season of a 10 things i hate about you tv show unbelievable which was directed by the same guy had the same composer for the music and has the dad returning to play his character again. But all of the other characters are recast and it's like telling the story over 20 episodes of a sitcom instead of an hour and a half. Anyone seen that? Not me. Then in 2012, the director began working on a sequel called 11 Things I Hate About You which was going to be like a a spiritual sequel about two new high schoolers, Evan Rachel Wood and Thomas McDonald, who are like both trying to kill themselves and then meet and fall in love and like give each other a reason to live. Interesting. And this was like full on in production. And then like the producers backed out and it fell apart. That's probably for the best. It seems. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. sound like a great premise. <laughs> I'd say so. 
Okay, time for one of our favorite parts of the show. MVP. The MVP of this movie, other than the protagonist. So I would say let's take off Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger. But everyone else is on the table. Out of everyone else, Lauren, who's your MVP? Honestly, I had a real soft spot for Joseph Gordon-Levitt here in this Mm. movie. The innocence and the eyes. He was just perfect for the part. And... It was just so good. So that's my MVP. Emmett, MVP? This is such a difficult one. <laughs> I have a feeling you're about to take mine. No, I think for me, it's it's Bogey Lowenstein. Ah! Is that yours? <laughs> he was going to be my one scene MVP. He is, <laughs> but he's in multiple scenes and he's incredible in all of them. <sighs> when he's there teaching them how to golf at the beginning, it's like perfect setup. I love the Bogey Lowenstein revenge tragedy arc that Michael has with him about how he kicked him out of the club. And then like the great revenge is like throwing the party at his house and completely trashing it. Oh my God. It's so perfect. The shot of Michael throwing all of the invitations out, falling in slow-mo while sexy boy is playing. Is pure cinema. Oh, wait. This movie has a soundtrack, and that soundtrack slaps. Yeah. Yeah, it does. MVP's soundtrack. Letters to Cleo playing on the roof of the high school for no reason (laughs) for the end credits. And it rocks. On the only sunny day in Seattle. (laughs) Right. The day when they shot this entire movie. (laughs) They're like, we got one day every five years. I love when Bogey says, that must be Nigel with the Brie. How did he not see all of the flyers cascading down? It's a free beer. The whole school that looked exactly like the invitations he had privately made for his friends. (laughs) What the hell, Bogey? Oh my god. Wait, who's your who's your MVP? Well, that is a great pick, Evan. I do love Bogey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not even gonna get into shout outs because we've talked about everyone being great. My favorite is Michael. David Grumholtz says <laughs> <is> Michael. <laughs> He's so good. He's so funny. He is like the perfect counterbalance to Joseph Gordon Levitt in their little friendship. Yeah. I don't know. He just really shines in that part. I love the moment where he's trying to explain to Heath Ledger that she likes pretty boys. And he's like, I'm not pretty. And Michael's like, he's a pretty man. He's a very pretty man. I also, I have to give a special shout out to Allison Janey as mm. the guidance counselor. Oh my god. So, so funny. That's something that I think wouldn't be in the movie today, although I love it. <laughs> but <Yeah>. her <laughs> pulsating <laughs> fan oh fiction. God. You maybe want to get away it's with this today. So good. It is so good. Like I can picture the guidance counselors at my high school doing something like that. Let's uh, let's give our final thoughts and then we'll play a little quiz here at the end. Final thoughts, everything that we want to say about 10 Things I Hate About You that we haven't covered yet. Lauren? 
I think that if you haven't seen it, you are doing yourself a great disservice. It is joyful. It is funny. And it is warm and fuzzy. And it will bring a smile to your face. I'm so happy I got to rewatch it and talk about it today. Emma? Like Clueless, like Mean Girls, it's one of those movies that you just watch and it makes you happy. It will make you laugh every time. Guaranteed. And Heath Ledger, dreamiest of all time in this movie. Also, go watch A Knight's Tale if you haven't. Mm. It's worth it. Mm. It's worth getting past the premise. Wait, (laughs) any final thoughts on this? What's the premise of A Knight's Tale? Just... It's about knights and jousting, and there's lots of rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, get, that's all it is. Get to that, and you will have a great time. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think we've covered most of it. We haven't talked about the beer flavored nipples, but oh, I love that line. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's pretty much all of my final thoughts. But it rocks, and it and it holds up. And if you haven't seen it, like go watch it because I think their chemistry is incredible. I think it's just something that you can't really fake. Yeah. Like the best actors in the world could create, you know, a very realistic, loving relationship, but they couldn't bring that energy that these two have in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Which is awesome. Let's bring it on home here with Bums the Word, our quiz. This is going to be about 1999, which has recently been called the best film year ever. There is a huge modern appreciation for 1999 that I'm sure has nothing to do with the fact that all the people writing about movies now were kids in 1999. (laughs) Yeah, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. (laughs) But it is true that a huge amount of films that are, uh, you know, recognized as, as being good released in 1999 i've got a long list of them here but today we're going to guess the 10 highest grossing films across the world of 1999 it's a pretty good list i would bet that you guys have heard of all of these movies if not seen most of them so let's dive into it i'm going to give you hints and uh you guys you know what you guys can uh you're playing together it's not a competition okay cool you're playing together because we're trying to guess all 10 okay Film number 10, the 10th highest grossing film of 1999, is a sequel in a parody series. Is it The Naked Gun 3? No. This is very 90s character and actor. It's like a comedic parody of a very famous long-running film series. Oh, is this Austin Powers something something? It is an Austin Powers movie. Okay, so Goldmember is the third one. This is the second one. The Spy Who Shagged Me? That's right. Ah, yes. Well done. Have you ever seen any of those Austin Powers movies? I've Yes, I have seen all three. I think they're incredible. I remember watching just I, one of them when I was 15 and being so offended as to like never want to watch any of them. <laughs> oh my God. I don't, I think I just grew up watching them and my whole family thought they were hilarious. And so now there's just... Like, I watch them and I feel, like, sentimental over Austin Powers. When I was in middle school, everyone told me my haircut looked like Austin Powers and made fun of me. So I never wanted to watch them. Oh, my gosh. You got to give them a chance. You don't look like Austin Powers. 
Film number nine. This is a drama. It's got a very problematic star and a very problematic premise, which is that it's a it's kind of like a dark drama about a so it's American Beauty starring um, <laughs> Kevin Spacey. Yes! Wow. Oh that was incredible. That was so fast. And I will not explain what American Beauty is about. <laughs> Film number eight is an entry in that long-running series that Austin Powers is making fun of. It's not James Bond, is it? It's James Bond. This is a James Bond movie. This is the 19th James Bond movie. It is the third starring Pierce Brosnan. I did not know there were 19 or more than 19. There are more than 19. Goldeneye? Nope. The Golden Gun. (laughs) The Spy Who Shagged Me. The Man with the Golden Eyeball. Hard to describe the title. The title is like a saying and it's kind of about wanting more. Oh, 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 never is never too much is enough. (laughs) You're kind of in the ballpark. (laughs) Never too much is enough. You're some dumbass name like that. (laughs) You're thinking of the right thing. Never say never again. No, that's that is another James Bond movie. (laughs) Is it really? That's the one where Connery comes back, like, in the 80s. Oh, he's, like, okay. way too old. Wow. Okay, you got the not enough part right. Not enough? So what is not enough? Once is not enough, or twice is not enough? No. Almost. It's a thing. It's a thing that is not enough. Like a physical... The world is not enough! Yes. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> I'm sorry. Film number seven is another famous rom-com. This is a famous British rom-com starring the famous British rom-com leading man. Hugh Grant? Mm-hmm. My Uncle Tim loves this movie. That's the what best hint I have. Okay. Uh, starring, starring Hugh Grant and another Julia. Different Julia. Julia Roberts? Roberts? Yes. What were they in together? Devil is... The title is A Place. It's kind of a bad title. (laughs) I think she is famous. Yes, she is a famous American actress. He is an unfamous British bookshop owner. They hit it off and he has to adjust to life in the spotlight and Mm. figure out if they can make it work. Notting Hill? Yes! Oh my gosh. Now, where did I pull that from? These next, the final six are easier. Those, all of those <laughs> included the hard ones, of which I thought Notting Hill was probably the hardest. Movie number six is an adventure film, kind of in the, the vein of Indiana Jones, but it's about two adventurers, a 90s young hot action star who has the curtains haircut and is bringing that to the world, and a young British female leading woman and they're going on an adventure to fight a historical bad guy. I don't know if I'm just bad at riddles or what. But... <laughs> he said he's got the curtains haircut. <laughs> and what? And she's okay. British. 
this is a leading man who's like in a bunch of stuff in the 90s and 2000s. This is his flagship series. Uh, is it Zoro? No. This is a guy who like then has a lot of health problems and basically falls out of the public eye. So he's like only in movies until like 2008. And then he's like just sort of come back and he looks like dramatically different now. He is like the young hottie of the 90s. And he's funny. I've got nothing. <laughs> this is a famous universal monster. Oh, is it the mummy? It's the mummy starring Brendan, Brendan Fraser. Fraser? Ooh. Did Brendan Fraser have a bunch of health problems? Yeah, I didn't know that. He did, yeah. Poor guy. My stepmom almost went on a date with Brendan Fraser, but she was too afraid to sneak out of the house to go meet him. It was before he was like, famous. Now we're in the top five. Number right. five is an animated musical. It is the last film in the Disney Renaissance. It is adapted from a classic book. Beauty and the Beast? Nope. Uh, this is one of the ones that has a male protagonist. It's not a princess in it. Hunchback? Is this Hunchback? No. Hercules? Nope. I'm just gonna... <laughs> it's the other one. <laughs> it's the other one. Those are all there. This is like a classic sort of character that it's about. There are a bunch of other movies about him. And it's it's from a book from the 1800s, I think. Mm -mm. Both humans and animals are characters in this. Main characters. Oh, Tarzan. <laughs> oh, the always hard the hardest one to get. Oh, it was Tarzan sneaking in at the end there of the Disney Renaissance. <laughs> Nobody really wants to claim it. Everybody would rather that it had been some embarrassment from DreamWorks, but they have to actually know that was Disney. Yes, correct. Good job. I was about to say Phil Collins, so you got it with dignity before I had to go there. <laughs> film number four is a science fiction film coming out here at the end of the 90s, but seems so quintessentially 90s. Uh, it's like the start of a series that has a new one, new entry coming out this Christmas. Matrix? Yep. Oh, smart. Number three, kind of surprising, but... This is a great movie. Not surprising because it's bad, but surprising that it's higher than all those other things. It's a sequel, and it's an animated film. Toy Story 2. Yes. Really? Oh, <laughs> damn. Yes. Wow, oh my gosh. That was 90s. Nice. Uh-huh, 99. Okay, number two is a horror movie, and it's number two in the world. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It is from, like, a writer, director, everyone has an opinion on. And this is his breakout. Is this Reservoir Dogs? Nope. You've got, uh, in this movie, you've got an action star who's the leading man, and he's with a little kid. A young oh, boy. Oh. The Sixth Sense. Hell yeah. That's a good-ass movie. I don't know if I consider it horror, though. I think that's what was tripping me up. I remember watching it on ABC Family as a kid. So that's yeah. not horror then. <laughs> Truly frightened. But I was watching the TV edit, so... God, I can't wait until ABC Family is playing the TV edit of Hereditary. <laughs> it's two minutes long. <laughs> okay, we've almost made it. The final movie, the highest grossing movie of 1999 is a prequel. 
I'll take Galactic Empire for five hundred dollars. <laughs> uh, is that Star Wars: The Phantom Menace? It is Star Wars wow. Episode One: The Phantom Menace, the highest-grossing movie of nineteen ninety-nine. Wow. Well done. Also, the best movie of nineteen ninety-nine. That's how it works. And honestly, maybe the best movie ever ever made. It's uh, Star Wars. I don't care what anyone says. Best movie ever Hayden made. Christensen deserves an Oscar. Yeah, especially for his work in that film that he was not in. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I knew that. I was joking. Well, look, those 10 films, all from 1999, also came out in 1999. Fight Club, Magnolia, Office Space, Eyes Wide Shut, The Blair Witch Project, The Virgin Suicides, The Iron Giant, American Pie, Being John Malkovich, The Green Mile, any Given Sunday, Run Lola Run, Cruel Intentions, Boys Don't Cry, and, of course, 10 Things I Hate About You. Damn. Wow. wow, an iconic year for film. Best film year ever, maybe. Other than 1931, maybe. <laughs> uh, Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a joy. Is there any anything you want to plug, anywhere the people can find you online? Yeah, sure. Follow my Insta, everybody, at Lauren Renner. That's that's all I got. And we will be back in 36 weeks talking about Jordan Peele's Nope. And next week, talking about Legally Blonde. Woohoo! All right. Wow, Lauren, anything that you think I should know watching Legally Blonde for the first time this week? Oh my goodness. Um, really? Just like open, have an open mind, open your mind and your heart. Yeah, and and enjoy, maybe enjoy like a, a fun little fruity cocktail while you watch it. That'll help. That's my advice. Emma, anything to say about Legally Blonde? Yes, while watching Legally Blonde, please don't think about Scream Two at all. <laughs> Okay, because cool. it'll might scare you. It's another movie that takes place on a college campus, and <laughs> you know. Okay. All right. Well, stay frosted, everybody. Much love. <laughs> yeah. Happy one year. Oh, oh, happy <laughs> Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcast. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp. And our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 